Well, let's turn in our Bibles, if you could, to Acts chapter 2. And I'm going to read verse 1 to 12 this morning. It's the passage that describes the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And if you're able, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We do this because this is Holy Scripture. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Here now is the word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Please be seated. You may be aware that 10 days ago was an event that is part of the liturgical church calendar. It's known as Ascension Day. It remembers the day that Jesus returned to heaven. It's 40 days after he rose from the grave. The thing that I've noticed is that many evangelical Protestant churches focus heavily on his birth, his life, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, and his eventual return. And so they should. But for some reason, they almost completely skip over his ascension 40 days after his resurrection. By the way, in 2022, that date was Thursday, May 26th. This morning, I want us to consider another event that we also tend to not focus on as much in different branches of Protestant Christianity. It's known as Pentecost. It occurred 50 days after his ascension, 50 days after his resurrection, 10 days after his ascension. And for this year, Pentecost Sunday is today, Sunday, June 5th. So people may ask, what is the day of Pentecost? Well, the Greek word Pentecosta is the name for a festival in the Old Testament that was also known as the Feast of Weeks. It's spoken of in Leviticus 23 and in Deuteronomy 16. The word Pentecosta means 50 it refers to the 50 days that have elapsed since what was called the wave offering at Passover. This Feast of Weeks celebrated the end of the grain harvest. Now, if we look back to the promise of the Holy Spirit, it was given in Jesus' very last words before he ascended in the, earlier, the previous chapter, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said, But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now, 
That's why Pentecost signals the beginning of what typically we refer to as the church age or the New Testament church age. And yet the only mention of the actual events is right here in Acts chapter 2. But Pentecost has something in common with the Last Supper. For one thing, in both instances, the disciples are gathered together in a room for what will prove to be a very significant event. But to contrast them, at the Last Supper, the disciples witness the end of Jesus' earthly ministry as he tells them to remember him after his death until he comes again. It's one of those memorial days of the Bible that I shared last week. And of course, we are observing that today as well. To contrast that, in Pentecost, the disciples witness the birth of the New Testament church and the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell all true believers. This connects the beginning of the Holy Spirit's work within the church. It connects that to the conclusion of Christ's earthly ministry, and it connects it there in the upper room the night before he was crucified. Now, there are images given in the Pentecost description, images of wind and fire, but you know they can be found in the Old Testament too, in Exodus 10 and Psalm 18 and in Isaiah 11, and even in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. Just as God breathed life into Adam in Genesis 2, the Holy Spirit brings the breath of spiritual life. And it was signified by the coming of the sound, the coming of the wind at Pentecost. In the Old Testament, fire is often associated with God's presence and God's holiness. And in the New Testament, it's associated with the purification the Holy Spirit brings in each of our lives. The tongues of fire described in Acts chapter 2 speak to God's presence, and to God's holiness. Indeed, fire is even identified with Christ himself in Revelation 1 and in Revelation 19. But there's another aspect of this event, Pentecost. It's the one that most people ask the most questions about. And that is the miraculous gift of tongues. People ask, what was that? What really happened? Well, it enabled people who spoke other languages to understand what the apostles were teaching. Later on in Acts chapter 2, it's seen through the bold preaching of Peter. On that day, 3,000 souls came to faith. So these are things that give us some background of that event, but let's talk about what is Pentecost Sunday. Well, today is, a, is kind of a remembering of the day in which the early church received the Holy Spirit. And John the John the Baptizer, people call him John the Baptist. You can get away with that when you're in a church that isn't a Baptist church. You have to remind Baptists that John wasn't a Baptist. Actually, some of the Old Testament writings refer to him as Johannian the Immerser. But that being said, he prophesied of this event when he said Jesus would baptize us with fire and with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus confirmed this when he spoke to his disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Here's what he said in John 14, verse 26. Jesus said, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. So it was on the day of Pentecost, ten days after Jesus' ascension back to heaven, just as promised, this sound of rushing wind fills the house. And these tongues of fire come to rest on each of the remaining disciples. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were given the power of communication, to be able to communicate with people from other cultures and languages. 
It was the beginning of what we typically call the New Testament church. But it reminds us of something else. It reminds us of the reality all true believers in Jesus have this Holy Spirit that was poured out upon the first century church, described right here in Acts chapter 2. As born-again believers in Jesus Christ, that Holy Spirit lives in us today. So that's a very brief overview. So let's look now at the first eight verses and dig in a little bit, the first eight verses of Acts chapter 2. And the first of these, I'm going to, in particular, use the rendering from the King James Version, because it uses a particular wording I find interesting. It says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. It describes it by using a, a term. It translated as fully come. The Greek term was sumplerou, and it speaks of a specific day or a number of days. And this is believed to be the connection of the term Pentecosta with that event called the Feast of Weeks, one of the pilgrimage festivals where people would return to Jerusalem. By the way, for this calendar year, for people who observe Passover, the Feast of Weeks began yesterday and it concludes tomorrow. Now eventually that feast was connected with the celebration of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai because the Israelites arrived at Mount Sinai just three months after that first Passover that's described in Exodus. So in verse 2, it says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. It does use the term suddenly. They're interrupted by this sound. And it, there's a specific Greek term used, uranos, often translated as coming from heaven. The idea is that as Jesus ascended to heaven, or into heaven ten days earlier, now this sound comes from heaven on this specific day. It's described as, a, as the sound of a strong rushing wind. Now wind, there's one that many of the original Greek manuscripts typically would use a term pneuma, a Greek term, which by the way we get our English word pneumatic from there. But pneuma can be used to describe both spirit and wind. But in this location here, it doesn't use that word. It uses a phrase, therobianos pran, which means the coming of the Holy Spirit. So it is a very specific reference to this event. Now in verse 3, it describes it a little further. <coughs> Excuse me. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues, like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. John the baptizer had told the people that one more powerful than he would come, who would baptize them, cleanse them, and he would do it with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So thus the appearance of these tongues of fire symbolizes the diverse powers of speech that came upon them. By the way, some Bible commentaries contrast this event, Pentecost, with the experience of the Israelites at Mount Sinai 1,500 years earlier. The contrast is that at Pentecost, the disciples in Jerusalem weren't afraid. Very unlike the reaction of the Israelites at Mount Sinai, where it says all the people who were in the camp trembled. It's quite a contrast. But at Pentecost, the followers of Jesus started to speak in what it says is other tongues. The miracles that the believers witnessed was the following. 
as I understand it. It was the following. They had the ability to speak in their own language while people from other regions heard them in their own language. It must have been something to the order of, um, I'm going to show my age somewhat here. Any of you guys grew up as Trekkers and Star Trek fans? There was a technology they used in Star Trek called the Universal Translator. People often ridiculed the show. They said, oh, come on. They go to all these different places and everybody speaks English. No, they didn't. There was a technology in which they spoke in their language and the people in that other society heard them in their language. It's amazing what you can get away with in science fiction, isn't it? By the way, I'm not saying that Star Trek is biblical teaching. I'm sure Mr. Spock would probably say, to hold such a viewpoint would not be logical. <laughs> so let's continue on. In verse 5, and it now describes, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. So the location changes from the, the meeting place in the room in the house now to the streets of the city, and people are passing by, and they're hearing so many different languages being spoken. It describes these Jews as being devout men who came from so many different regions. They probably lived in the communities of the cities of the different Roman-occupied provinces. And by the way, for the event that they would have come to Jerusalem for, the Feast of Weeks, the estimate is that as many as one million individuals came to the city. So this is a huge gathering of people. Verse 6 uses an interesting phrase. This is again back in the old King James translation. When this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. That term, noised abroad, it's used in the more traditional English translations. The Greek word was phone, F-O-N-E in English letters. And by the way, that's where we get our word phone. And it's a method to communicate with people. So when you talk on the phone with someone else, your voice is being noised abroad. When your children are on the phone too long, tell them they're being noised abroad too much. But here in verse 6, the sound probably wasn't the sound of the wind the way it was in verse 2. It's now the sound of the voices of believers in different languages. That's what the reaction of the crowd suggests. They hear these Christian believers speaking, but they hear them in their own native language. In verse 7 gives the reaction. It says, And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these who speak Galileans? The people who were in the crowd knew that the followers of Jesus, that many of them had come from Galilee, and they probably can't imagine how they're able to speak languages from people in regions outside of their own area. They also may have made a statement, just something to the order of, Who are these people? Or as I've heard students say to me when I would volunteer at the high school in Gaylord with the band program, they would say, what's with that? I'm sure that the reaction was very much like what they're saying in verse 8. They say, and how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? The people on the street outside the house are surprised because they hear the disciples speaking in languages which were spoken where those individuals grew up. Every man heard them in their native language. Verse 9 to 11 gives a rather complete list of the regions, the ethnic groups, even one city, of whose languages the people hear being spoken. 
and it's under the miraculous influence of the Holy Spirit. It really is quite a range of languages, and what they hear, at least in their ears, is their own local dialect and manner of speaking. How did it happen? It was a miracle of the Holy Spirit, which I understand it to have been used for the growth of the church during that first century. Now, of course, there were some who ridiculed this. They even suggested that they were drunk. Verse 12 and 13. Well, that was interesting. <laughs> well, you get the, right, the correct slide back up because I must have double or triple pressed. It says, and they were all astounded and perplexed, saying one to another, what does this mean? But some sneered and said, they're drunk on new wine. But then in verse 14, Peter stands up and he takes the matter head on and he says, Ye men of Judea and all that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, hearken unto my words. These are not drunken, as ye suppose. Then he goes out into that famous sermon in which 3,000 souls came to believe. And we'll consider that sermon at a future message at a future date. So what can we conclude about this event? known as Pentecost. Well, these miracles and wonders were a unique gift of the Holy Spirit. And my understanding is that they were specific to that particular era. They were given for the growth of the first century church, and that they were real, understandable, specific languages. They were not unknown utterances. Now, that being said, we all know people who we consider as brothers and sisters in the faith, they believe sign gifts are present today. It's not an issue which we would agree on them. It's a doctrinal difference. But we extend grace to them as they extend grace to us because it is not something that is saving. It's not salvific. So that's my best understanding of what happened at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. I hold the view that's called the cessationist view that the sign gifts ceased at the end of the first century. And I put one little asterisk on that statement. And it's the same statement I made when I, Terry and I came for that question and answer session on March 17th. And that was, no, I don't believe that the sign gifts are normative for today. That being said, we have fellow believers who do believe that. And so we extend grace on that. Because they're saved by God's grace and Christ's blood just like you and I are. Secondly, I'm not going to put God in a box and say he could not use something like that if a missionary in a faraway place where nobody spoke any language that anybody else had encountered before. I'm not going to put God in a box like that. I'm just going to say that my understanding of Scripture is that it teaches that those sign gifts did cease at the end of the age of the apostles. You know, our brothers and sisters from the Pentecostal branches of the faith, we love them because Christ loves them. And we should pray for them and pray for their ministries because many of those dear brothers and sisters have been very encouraging to me over the years as well. So I hope this gives you a, a better understanding of what really happened some 2,000 years ago, at least so far as I'm able to discern it. Now let me take just a moment and talk to our graduating seniors. Whether you're graduating from high school or we have at least one that I'm aware of here, Alyssa, who graduated from Michigan State just recently. Just like the people back then asked the question, what does this mean? And just like I said to the children today, to think about the things that are real, but we can't see them. 
to those of you that are graduating today, what does this mean to you? My suggestion to you is that one of the things is that it reminds us that God's Holy Spirit is always with you. If you trusted Jesus as your Savior, you, you don't need to fear the future because, well, you will face many challenges in life. He is with you, and he will give you what you need. Keep your eyes on him. Keep following him. Keep growing in him. Remember, he loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, as your parents and grandparents look back when they were your age, I'm sure that they can see how God's always been there. And they would say that even, especially, when they weren't particularly paying attention to him. But what I say to each of you is, trust God, seek his wisdom, lean into the grace that we have through his only begotten Son. Follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit, who lives within you as true believers in Jesus Christ. And above all, above all, as you move forward with your life, seek to walk close to God. Have a desire to bring glory to him. Because when we, when we really think about it, isn't that what our life is supposed to be about? To bring glory to God, who loved us so much, he sent his only begotten Son, so that all who repent and believe can receive the salvation that only Jesus could have purchased. And he did it for you and for me. In other words, we have to be reminded, it's not about us. It's about him. And so with that thought in mind, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we pray for our graduates. We pray for good wisdom for them, that your Holy Spirit will come upon them and guide them. We know that you are with us here today, Lord, that you have said, wherever two or more are gathered in your name. Lord, help us also to extend tremendous grace because we know that there's differing opinions on this issue. We know that your Holy Spirit is real. May we listen to what he's trying to tell us. Lord, we pray that you'll be with these young people in all these years ahead. As we place them under your loving care, realizing, of course, that is where they have always been, as believing Christian young people. And that is where they will always be, by your grace, through your sacrificial death on the cross, and by the calling power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this, Lord, in the name of the Father, the Son, and through the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.